kids across the province will be slinging on their backpacks full of newly bought school supplies and heading back to the classroom. Teachers have put together their lesson plans, they're ready to teach, and what they will be teaching is making headlines in Ontario. There, the provincial government is changing up the sex education curriculum, going back to one formulated in the early 1990s. They're also switching up how students will be learning about math. So what do you think students should be taught, and what do you think should be the focus of that education? Should it be science and math, more Canadian history? And how do you think teachers can give students a well-rounded education? What's the best approach to learning? You can give us a call right now with your thoughts on education. It's 1-800-716-2221. You can tweet us, we're at BlueSkyCBC, or uh, email us, where we are bluesky at cbc.ca. So again, the conversation today is about education. want to hear from you today. What do you think uh, kids should be learning these days? How much should uh, education change to uh, change with the times? Or maybe you think it's gone too far down that road. Either way, we want to hear from you today. It's 1-800-716-2221. You can email bluesky at cbc.ca or tweet us at bluesky.cbc. To get his take on all this, we're joined now by Michael Zwagstra. He's a public high school teacher in Manitoba and a senior fellow with the Frontier Centre for Public Policy. Hi, Michael. Hi, good to be with you. Uh, it's good to have you. It's, it's been a while. I guess school must be going back because here we are. Um, yeah, Mike, absolutely. <laughs> Michael, what are students learning today that might be different from when I went to school? Well, one thing that we see that, uh, that's quite different is that there's a very strong uh, emphasis and focus on something called inquiry learning. It's often called discovery learning, where the emphasis is that instead of teachers um, presenting sort of standard knowledge to students and helping them acquire it and have a certain amount of practice and repetition, instead students are supposed to largely discover things on their own with the teacher guiding as opposed to directly instructing. And so you see this certainly in math, where you see the, the, you know, the, new, the new math uh, with the focus on uh, the, the self-directed uh, discovery. You see this uh, even in areas like social studies and science where you see less emphasis on learning you know, particular facts that you know, everyone should have in common and rather this focus on you know, so-called 21st century skills that, uh, that are supposed to transcend the content. And so that would be an example of a shift that certainly happened in, in the last number of years. Well, uh, flesh that out for us a bit, a bit, Michael. What is this discovery learning? Well, it really is just a, it's a reflection of an age-old educational philosophy. I mean, it, there's, it's really not new at all. It goes back several hundred years to uh, French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau and his book, Emily. Uh, it was really popularized in the early 20th century by William Hertzfeld Patrick. He called it the project method. And really, it's this uh, idea that, you know, that the students should be primarily responsible for directing their own learning, uh, that it's, the content is not what is important. It's rather the process of how you learn it. And, uh, and so it's been repackaged nowadays, and it's called different things, and it's often just simply called 21st century skills, but it really is just a rehash of, uh, of an educational philosophy that's been around for, for a very long time. Well, why has that uh, particular educational philosophy then come in and out of favor? Well, it's, uh, you know, there's a, there's a very good book by education historian Diane Ravitch that was uh, published a number of years ago called Left Back, A Century of Failed School Reforms. And she documented the history of the education wars in the United States, and uh, which, of course, much of it spills over into Canada because we've, we've copied much of their system. And uh, there were uh, education professors, particularly Columbia Teachers College, that were more progressive, like William Hurt Kilpatrick. And then you have the more traditional professors that focused on knowledge and content, such as William Bagley. And at the end of the day, uh, Kilpatrick ended up winning in the sense that he had more followers, he lived longer, he taught longer, and he was more dynamic teacher. 
and that influenced a whole generation of education professors who wrote books, and that influenced the education faculties at other universities. So really, it was a it was a war that took place in education faculties, and the progressives were were better organized and lasted longer, and so hence their ideas largely became dominant. All right. Uh, we got an email here from Jody. Um, Jody writes, aside from the usual basic but important fundamentals, I think our education system must really emphasize critical thinking skills. We're currently inundated with information, true or otherwise, which already significantly impacts our lives, and the future will only bring more. I believe a dedicated class to critical thinking each and every year would not only reinforce the skill itself with ever-expanding complexity due to the age of the student, but also would provide an opportunity to explore the world of information itself, learning the benefits and pitfalls of it all. If one thing, It's one thing to be literate, but if you believe everything you read, it can be disastrous for our lives. Um, you know, that... Uh, that's an interesting point that Jody makes, and it, it, it sort of opens a, an area of conversation that I hope we can have this afternoon, Michael. And that's, it seems to me that every time we have this conversation, teachers are being asked to do more. We're, we're, mm -hmm. we're asking our schools to do more. We still want the basics. We still want the fundamentals, as Jody said. But on top of that now, we want coding. We want uh, critical thinking skills. We want uh, s social media skills. Um, is there a point where... You just can't do it all? Well, sure there is. And let me zero in on the topic of critical thinking because I understand Jody's point, but uh, I frankly, I think it misses the point because critical thinking, it is not a transferable, isolated skill. Critical thinking is completely dependent on content knowledge. You cannot think critically about something you know nothing about ever. Uh, if you're having a conversation with, your, with a friend and you want to get some advice on a challenge you're facing, the first thing you do is not, hey, what do you think I should do? Use your critical thinking skills. No, you, you talk to them about here's the problem, you give them the background knowledge, the, the content they need, and then they can give you some advice in terms of dealing with it. And so having a separate class just on critical thinking, that would be a huge mistake because it's not a transferable skill. Uh, now, having knowledge in your brain doesn't guarantee critical thinking. There's obviously more to thinking critically than just memorizing a lot of stuff. But you cannot think critically if you don't have facts in your brain in advance. I mean, one of the subjects I teach is Canadian history. Um, if a student does not know uh, a reasonable vote by memory in regards to Confederation of 1867 and the key players involved and some of the provinces involved, I can guarantee you they cannot think critically about why Confederation happened the way it did and how it might have occurred differently if certain things have been changed. You need the, the, you need the actual content knowledge in order to think critically. So uh, I really think we need to move away from this idea that critical thinking is an abstract transferable skill uh, because really it isn't. Now we've got a tweet here from, I believe it's Kuriako. High schools should really put some focus on personal finance and budgeting. Okay, well, you know, to my point, um, how much can we expect out of schools? I mean, that's kind of our fundamental question today, is, is what can yeah. we expect from our schools? Yeah, I, you know, and it, it is definitely easy to pile stuff on, and we never seem to take anything out. Uh, you know, personal finance, yes, I think that should be, uh, that should be a taught. I think that can be a component within math class. And, uh, again, in Saskatchewan, I'm not sure exactly how, I know in Manitoba we have a course called Essentials Math where that's covered within that. Um, I think there is room to, to have that as a component in the curriculum. Uh, but I do not want to ever move away from learning the fundamentals. I'm not talking about just basic facts, but I am talking about making sure that foundational knowledge things that everyone needs to know in common in order to function in society, uh, that that cannot be left out. And the problem is when you keep adding things, we talk, you know, we want students to do social media and critical thinking and all these things, 
we end up cutting up the content. And we already have too many courses that are virtually content-free. English language arts would be an example. There's virtually no content in there that's prescribed, and I think that is a, that is a huge mistake. So we need to have the content there, and then we build upon it, and then and then we can have students really, uh, really learning and thinking critically. Okay, listeners, we're talking about education today. It's apropos as school goes back in just a few days. But when they get there, what do you think students should be taught? What's the best approach to learning? Think back to when you were in school. Was there a teaching method that worked for you? Or um, maybe there were teaching methods that didn't work for you that you hope are gone. Is there something you wish uh, you had been taught that you weren't? Give us a call right now. It's 1-800-716-2221. You can tweet us. We're at BlueSkyCBC. Or Drop us a line via email. It's bluesky at cbc.ca. So again, we're talking about education today, uh, what kids are taught, and what you think should be the emphasis on what kids are taught going into the 2018-2019 school year. It's not 1963 anymore, but have things really changed that much? Give us a call. 1-800-716-2221. Tweet bluesky at cbc.ca or email us where we are at bluesky.cbc. Our guest today is Michael Zwagster. Michael's a public high school teacher in Manitoba and a senior fellow with the Frontier Centre for Public Policy. Um, I want to just return to this idea of discovery learning uh, uh, again, partly because I'm having troubles getting my head around the concept. Um, give us a, an example, if you could, Michael, of, of where this sort of discovery learning is used. Well, you certainly see it in math. And so, uh, you know, any, any parents that, uh, you know, if you have kids in school, if you take a look at your kid's math textbook, if it's a textbook called Math Focus or Math Makes Sense, that is an example of a textbook that uses this method. And you will, you will find that, so for example, let's say the topic of two-digit multiplication, uh, you will not find you know, it's clear examples of step-by-step step of you put the one number on top of the other number and multiply the ones by the ones and then the ones by the tens and line them up and then add at the bottom. Rather, what you will find is a variety of ways that you can solve it, questions that focus on why do you think this way, how do you think, what is another way to solve this question. And, and so the focus is that on students sort of solving it themselves using their own methods. It actually encourages you to invent your own methods of, of solving it. Or often it'll have these multiplication arrays where you map it out. And, uh, uh, and, and so basically these kind of books and these methods do everything they can to avoid showing you the simplest, most efficient way of actually solving the question. Because the emphasis isn't on getting the correct answer. The, the emphasis is on the, so the process of learning. Because for the discovery slash inquiry approach, the emphasis is more on the process than on the actual content or on ensuring that answers are correct. And again, I'm not opposed to all forms of discovery. Discovery is good. It's good to get students to play with numbers and have some fun with things and build on it, as long as you've actually got the actual content knowledge that you need to build upon. So uh, if you're simply going to be doing primarily inquiry and discovery, that's where you're going to have a whole lot of students that are left behind. Okay, uh, math as an example now. If we look at, say, the social sciences, does it perhaps work better there? No, not really. It's uh, uh, not unless the students already have substantial, you know, content knowledge. So you take a course like Canadian history. Uh, having students do some self-exploration of topics within Canadian history is great if they already know a reasonable amount of Canadian history. If they're coming into a course and they know virtually nothing about Confederation of 1867, their self-discovery, you know, their discovery project isn't going to work uh, terribly well. Uh, because they will often get the wrong information, or they'll, 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 they'll get inaccurate information, or they will only get a small subset of the broader uh, knowledge they need in order to truly understand some of the factors leading the Confederation of 1857. So the, the, 
the inquiry approach, you know, problem-based learning, all that sort of thing, the research is actually pretty clear. And some of John Hattie's work has pointed this out, and he's a well-known education researcher that sort of synthesized a lot of studies. It works great uh, with PhD students, with medical students. These are you know, students who have many years of formal education under their belt, and now they're at that pinnacle, and now they're, uh, they have a substantial broad knowledge base, and now they're doing independent research. Um, the fact is, most grade one students aren't quite at that level yet. Uh, that it's, it, they need a lot of stuff directly taught to them sequentially in order to master it. Um, so really, discovery is really at its best when you're at the PhD level. And I have no problem. If you're, if, you, if you're a PhD student, you should do a whole lot of inquiry and discovery. Okay, well, is there room for a, sort of a blend of both approaches? Yes, there is, as long as you have a solid, strong emphasis on fundamentals and mastering basics and doing it in a sequential way. Um, uh, professor Anna Stocky, a math professor at the University of Winnipeg, has done a lot of work on the topic of math curriculum, and she put out a report a number of years ago. She recommended a roughly 80-20 split, you know, about in, in, at least in the area of math, where about 80% is building sequentially on fundamentals and about 20% discovery. I'm not hard and fast on an exact ratio. That seems like a reasonable ratio to me, where you have a primary emphasis on building on fundamentals with the opportunity to do some exploration once you've mastered some things. Uh, so absolutely there's room for both. What there's not room for is this excessive emphasis on inquiry, where it seems to all putting all our eggs in that basket. That's where we run into problems. Okay, Michael, we're going to take a, a we'll, we'll, pardon me, we're going to take a real quick break now for a news update, quick look at the weather, and then back to our conversation. We're talking about education today. Our question for you listeners, what do you think students should be taught, and how should they be taught? Our telephone number is 1-800-716-2221. You could tweet us at BlueSkyCBC or email us. It's bluesky at cbc.ca. Education, the topic of discussion today. We want to hear your thoughts. We'd really like to hear from some parents and teachers today about uh, their approach to learning or what they expect the kids to learn in school and how they expect them to learn it. Again, 1-800-716-2221. It's 12.30. Back to our conversation today about uh, education. Kids going back to school in just a few days. So when they get there, what are they going to learn and how are they going to learn it? What do you think they should learn and how do you think they should learn it? Give us a call with your thoughts. Anything to do with education today, we want to hear from you. As I mentioned, I'd really like to hear from some parents and teachers, uh, maybe parents that are somewhat confused about what's going on in the classroom, and maybe some teachers that can help share uh, their thoughts on how uh, learning can be approached. Our telephone number again is 1-800-716-2221. You could email bluesky at cbc.ca or reach us on Twitter where we are at BlueSkyCBC. Our guest, Michael Zwagstra, teaches in a public high school in Manitoba and is also a senior fellow with the Frontier Center for Public Policy. And Michael is sharing his time with us today. Michael, I want to share this tweet with you because I think it it uh, follows nicely to our conversation before the news break. Uh, Terry tweets, math does not make sense. Kids are suffering in my view. Just please teach my kid how to multiply. As a parent, it is painful and it shows in the report card. Um, go ahead. Yeah, well, I, I, I don't, I, I agree. I mean, I think he makes it, it makes a good point. And, you know, what's, what's funny about this is that I have heard from many parents that are math professors that are engineers, computer programmers, accountants. And when I hear them say that they can't figure out their kids' grade three math uh, homework, that should be a pretty clear sign that the method that's being used to do the 
math is probably is, is a little wonky. When you've got professionals who do math for a living that are looking at a grade three math problem and are going, I don't really get how this works, there, there's something wrong with it. I mean, no wonder kids find it confusing if, if parents who do math for a living are having difficulty with it. So, uh, you know, I, I agree with that tweet entirely. I think it's a good point. All right, let's hear from James Saskatoon. Hi, James. Good afternoon, Garth. So I guess I can only relate to my own experience. And and, and I think uh, my, mine was a situation where I certainly had some uh, learning challenges early on in, in my existence. Uh, I grew to understand that it was dyslexic in, in origin. Um, but what ended up happening, I'll never forget my first year in university psychology, where all of a sudden you're learning that there are, you know, the five different types of learning uh, that go on. And, and, and you thought to yourself, oh, my God, if I only would have known this in grade nine, <laughs> the dividends that it could have spent. But so now I, all I can say is I look back over my many years and and there's two things that I think are foundational. The capacity to write quality uh, essays in, and, and writing structure and grammar. Um it's, it's it's something that we need to do in such a um, focused uh, approach to it because it's so foundational and our math skills basis basic capacity to to do uh, math with one to ten it it, it it helps you even fill out your form for CRA <laughs> you know and, and, and so those are the issues that I think at the end of the day we can try and find all these subsets and, 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 and the new latest technology and, and, and the new premise uh, going forward. But at the end of the day, foundational to all uh, of our development is, is, is our capacity uh, to, to write um, with good grammar and, and uh, basic math skills. And then the rest is all secondary, individual. Okay. Thank okay, you, James. Thanks. Thanks, James. But, um, I don't want to get off on, on a tangent here. Uh, I want to get back to the phone calls right away, Michael, but uh, just something that, uh, that Jim said raised a question. How are kids being taught to read these days? What's in fashion these days? Well, it's uh, the most balanced literacy, and it sort of it takes a few elements of the uh, of phonics where you, you actually learn the, you know, the letters and learn mm -hmm. how to sound them out and combines it with elements of what's called whole language, uh, where the emphasis is on look at words in context, guess at them, look at the pictures, um, and, and, and that. I mean, there's the, the age-old phonics versus whole language debate has been around for a long time. Uh, I should say the research evidence is clear. Phonics is superior to whole language. I mean, that is overwhelming. Uh, balanced literacy, I, I would describe it as it's, it, it's better than just whole language, but it's not as good as having a better emphasis on, on, on phonics. So, you know, balanced literacy does just enough phonics that you could basically get by. Um, so that's, that's what that would be the, the, you know, the method that is generally being used in, in yeah. most schools now. I was just curious where the pendulum is this year. Yeah, it, it, that, that pendulum goes back and forth. It's, on, on the topic of uh, how to read, it's, it's still tilted toward the whole language side, but not quite as far as it once was because the evidence is just so overwhelming. Uh, that whole language is not is not very effective, but it's amazing how it never dies. I mean, it's still the, the basic idea behind it is still around. It still infuses much of the balanced literacy approach, even though the the research evidence is just absolutely overwhelming that phonics is a superior method of teaching reading uh, to whole language. Okay, but teachers aren't losing their contract anymore for teaching phonics. 
Uh, no, um, but they, they certainly are being pushed to to include many elements of uh, you know of whole language. I mean that's uh, uh, that still certainly remains the case. Okay, let's hear from Les and Dundurn. Hi, Les. Thank you for the uh, discourse as usual. Thank you to your guest. He should be made the director of education in, in our province and others. Apart from the specific method of teaching, and I taught at the university level, what I see going on in society at all levels is a serious dumbing down. Nobody ever fails. They get pushed on. The further they get pushed on, the more fish out of the water they are, and that carries on and on. And society's really going to pay for this down the road because it carries on. What we used to do as a dissertation to get a bachelor's degree would get a master's degree in university now. So there's a serious dumbing down, and I'd like your guest's uh, opinion on that, and I'll shut up. Thank you very much for your program. Thanks for your call, Les. Uh, what do you think, Michael? Or has there been a, a dumbing down over the last number of years? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, all you need to do is compare uh, a math textbook from, you know, 60 years ago to now, and you'll see the difference. Or or compare a history textbook for, uh, a number of years ago uh, to now. I mean, yeah. I mean, history, there are many things that we've improved as far as recognizing certain biases that were in place then. But look beyond that and just look at the, the reading level, the content, and the level, level of detail in the older history textbooks compared to what there is now. There's no comparison. There was, they, they, they were far more uh, in-depth at that point. And this is a message that I've heard often, from, particularly from university professors, particularly the professors who teach first-year undergraduate students, because they're getting the students who are coming right out of high school. And it is very common for students to enter university and not be able to write an essay or not be able to do basic math. That is why universities across the country are setting up re remedial uh, reading and writing courses, because they have to in order for students to be able to get by. So uh, the reality of dumbing down is there, and the people who are in the university system uh, are certainly more than aware of it. All right, let's hear from uh, another James in Saskatoon. Hi, James. Hi, Garth. Yes, uh, I, I, I look at this from the, from the point of, of Technical training. I was the training coordinator for a, a large union in Saskatchewan for 15 years, and I sat on various advisory boards, including the Labor Force Development Board, for a number of years. And one of the things that we persist, you know, consistently put forward was that uh, that that we weren't getting people out of the K to 12 system who were suitable for apprenticeship programs. Uh, I look and and I look at uh, at the differences in the technical training suppliers, where uh, one of them had a competency-based learning or or uh, discovery-based learning program, and in one year where they had 24 completed apprentices uh, who wrote their interprovincial journeyman's exam, only one out of 24 passed, and in the other in the traditional schools, everybody passed. So it's you know I, I look at it that there's there's too 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 much supply side management of the education system where you have uh, school boards who are uh, driven by uh, you know uh, by interest based uh, trustees. I mean there's you have uh, small groups you have the trustees uh, who have one. Thing a lot of them have one issue that they want to push through, and that distorts the whole education system. We have to get back to something where, where uh, the product of the K to twelve system 
is uh, not only someone who is competent to go to university, but someone who is successful in the labor force. Uh, if if a journeyman in in a, in a trade cannot teach an apprentice because the apprentice does not know how to learn and doesn't want to learn, just wants to do the job as they see fit, uh, it's it's really not good for any industry, and it doesn't matter which, whether sure. it's construction or, or uh, manufacturing or service industry, you know, uh, and what we have to do is have a, have a K-12 system that provides competent workers uh, along with uh, the small group of, of uh, students who go on to university, because only 15% of the students go on to university, and probably only, only uh, a third of that or less completes even a, a, a bachelor degree. James, so, yeah. Okay, James, thanks for that point of view. That's an interesting, uh, interesting way of looking at it. Thanks so much. Okay. Um, any, any thoughts on... Cause, uh, well, sure. I think, I, yeah. yeah, I think he makes a number of good points. And, uh, you know, the reality is, is that a significant number of students do choose to go in the trades. And frankly, uh, we need more students to choose trades because uh, we, there are many areas where there's a shortage of, uh, of qualified tradespeople. And uh, not, uh, many students should go to university, but many shouldn't. And there are, many, there are a lot of good options in that regard. Having a solid, well-rounded education with an appropriate knowledge base where you learn fundamental skills that helps everyone, whether you're going to university or whether you're going into a trade or whether you're going into the work, just the regular workforce immediately after you graduate. Uh, these are uh, having those fundamentals in place, having a broad knowledge uh, base uh, solidly there. That will help you no matter what you do. And not having that in place will hurt you no matter what you do, as, uh, as your caller made very clear. Well, yeah, and coming back now to this discovery-based learning, um, I don't know about you, Michael, but I don't want the person who welds the bridge I drive across every day to have discovered welding. I, no, I want them I mean, to have been taught how to, because there's a right way and a wrong way. Well, absolutely. I mean, and this is and this is and this is the thing is that there's there's no other profession where we would tolerate this kind of loosey goosey approach to you know, this, 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 this approach to learning. Uh, you know, we don't train dentists that way. We don't train doctors that way. As far as we, there has to be fundamental knowledge skills that are clearly taught in place, and a certain amount of repetition involved in making sure that those things are actually locked. That those are things are locked in our brain. And uh, you know, it really frustrates me that when you look at the professional development conferences that teachers have, all the emphasis always seems to be on you know, don't focus on the subject, focus on the process of learning, don't focus on the content, focus on. You know, the, you know the, the helping the students find their own way there. Uh, imagine if that was the type of professional development dentists got when they got to their thing, or or airline pilots. If that was theirs, like no, there's there are actual things that work better than others, and we should actually focus on some of those. And education is this profession that lurches from one fad to the next, and back and forth in the pendulum because people don't, you know, in, in the system focus more on their educational ideology rather than looking at what the evidence actually shows. And that's, that's very unfortunate. Okay, just a little bit of a challenge though, Michael. We, we live in an age where lifelong learning is probably more important than it's ever been before, right? I mean, you and I, I think, are pretty close to of an age. If we'd have stopped uh, learning when we finished uh, high school or university or whatever, we'd be pretty lost nowadays. Right. So is there an argument for this uh, student-directed uh, learning or, or uh, experience learning or experiential learning as a way of preparing people for that lifelong learning task? 
you know, I, I actually don't think that's the best argument for, uh, you know, for the discovery and inquiry approach. Uh, the reality and the evidence is pretty clear in this, that the more you know, the more you're able to learn. And this is definitely true. You look at an area like reading comprehension. The people think of reading as an abstract, transferable skill. It's not, at least at least not the comprehension part. In order to understand what you read, you actually need to know about the topic of the article you're reading about. If you don't, if you read an article about, let's say, hockey, about a hockey game, and you don't know what a puck is, you don't know about the net, you don't know any of the rules of the game, you won't be able to understand the article. No matter how much critical thinking skills you have and how much of a lifelong learner you are, you just won't bother reading it because you know nothing about the topic. But the more you know, the broader your knowledge base, the more you will learn in the future. And, you know, it, it's often called the Matthew effect. You know, to, to those who have much more will be given to those who do not have what little they have will be taken away. And that is very true in the area of knowledge acquisition. The more we help our students know in school, the more naturally they will be lifelong learners because it's easier for them to learn more than what they know now. Okay, I'm going to bring Robert into the conversation in Saskatoon. Hi, Robert. Yes, good afternoon. Um, I'm a retired teacher. I taught for 31 years from 1974 to 2005, and I taught everything in the in the system uh, from K up to um, adult education and, and a sessional lecture at the university, except for kindergarten, grade 5, and grade 8. Um, I haven't heard anything that your guest today has said that I disagree with. I will note I remember teaching grade four arithmetic and the program we had uh, started a concept with about two days of sort of a discovery learning approach and then uh, eased into drill and practice. And uh, I found for the most part with the, with the more talented students got out of it, I'm, I'm not sure. But at the end of the unit, when the children who were struggling or still having trouble, I would say something like column addition. Well, you know, you add up this number, and then if it's 26, you put the 6 down here, and you put the 2 at the top of the next column, and you add it in. And they'd say, you mean that's it? Because the discovery learning piece had little activities with blocks and uh -huh. shapes and et cetera, et cetera, and concrete materials. And, and it, it just didn't stick for those. Um, and I guess the other point I, I would make is I always made an attempt where my assignment allowed me to do so to put a great emphasis on listening to the news every day. And uh, the assignment was you need to listen or watch a newscast every day, and then we will discuss uh, – what was in the news today, which is fairly time consuming, would take 20 or 30 minutes. And, and I was constantly looking for curricular objectives that I could say, can I uh, plug this into my news program? So in case anybody says, how are you teaching the curriculum? Um, but when I meet students that I've had in the past, the most likely comment that they'll make to me, uh, anything I taught them was, I still watch the news every day. Yeah. And, and that is something that stuck. So often we hear the people in the community saying, well, they should be teaching that in the schools. Well, you know what? They, they are teaching that in the schools, but it doesn't necessarily stick. So um, I, think, I think what your guest has had to say has been right. I think, I think the current events piece is really important. If you've been following the news for two or three years and there all of a sudden comes up to be some kind of constitutional question, which is it a federal or provincial responsibility, if you've got no context for that, it's absolutely meaningless to do a lesson on that in your grade 11 classroom. But if they've been listening to the news all the way up, and you can go back and say, well, here's an example where there was an issue, and here's an example where there needed to be clarification, then I think it's a lot more meaningful, and then that's going to stick. Great. Robert, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts. Okay, thanks so much. Bye.
Um, got an email here from Joyce. Uh, I want to uh, just share this real quick. Uh, Joyce writes, I'm a retired teacher now in my 80s. These theories are recycled in many forms over and over again. How many versions of the new math have appeared since the one I tangled with back in 1965? How many times have I heard that the teacher should be a guide on the side in self-directed learning? I've learned that no specific system is good for every child and any system is only as good as its teacher. I also learned both as a teacher and as a parent that when adjustment needs to be made in a situation, it almost always the student that has to do the adjusting and square pegs and round holes have a pretty tough time. Thanks for that, Joyce. Now let's hear from Gurnham in Gull Lake. Hi, Gurnham. Hi, Gus. <laughs> I just uh, want to say I did teach math for 39 years and uh, I my experience was once you catch the kids and make them master the basic skills, which your guest has always said that, they reach a stage when you can start introducing discovery. And otherwise, if you start discovery before they have mastered the skills, they started to lose themselves. So that's what was done. In fact, I was really very tough with them. If they brought calculators with them and at the first level, I would ask them to check the calculators on my table and there was no exception made. And once they had mastered what I wanted them to master, they can keep the calculators with them and I can take them to the next level. And I think I, with, I am very proud to say I had a very good success by the time grade 12 was over that people were able to proudly say, hey, I love math. And right. once kids do, because they are able to do discovery, they are able to look forward to saying math is applicable, calculus is the first one comes, and then after that, life takes them wherever they want to go. So I think basics, we should not fumble those basics and they should, people should be made to master. Okay. Thank you for listening to me. Thanks. Thanks, Gurnham. Yeah. Okay, bye. Uh, we're going to go back to the phone lines in just a moment, uh, Michael, but before we go, I, I'm just interested because you're a history teacher. Mm -hmm. uh, no, we've been talking about uh, a pendulum in education. I think we, we use that uh, analogy every time you and I chat. What's <laughs> it like being a history teacher these days? Well, you know, I enjoy teaching history. I've taught it for many years, and uh, uh, you know, it, it's faced with the, the pendulum is, is there in history, too, where there is the constant battle between those such as myself that advocate for having, uh, you know, having, you know, prescribing a reasonable, a reasonable amount of content that we teach and having a teaching in a chronological way and making sure that one thing builds upon the other. And obviously there's room for discovery and that's whatever, whatever students do projects, they pick their topics and yes, by all means, let's explore, but make sure that that's there. And, and of course, on the other side, you have those that, you know, want to focus on history skills and, you know, the content isn't what's important, it's rather what's of interest to the students. And that, that battle is there in history too. It's, it's there in virtually, it's there in virtually every subject. And so, um, in many ways, it's quite similar to uh, what's happening in math now. And I, I did teach math many years ago at the uh, at the grade five level, so I had experience at that point too. And uh, but a lot of similarities in terms of the the educational battle going on. Um, let's hear from Paula Meal up by Nipple One. Hi, Paula Meal. Uh, turn down your radio, Paul. Really uh, understand. Um, was 
so many English classes, uh, you know, stuff on the students because um, English and math are necessary, no doubt. Um, but what was happening is uh, the teachers teaching history and uh, you know, all the other subjects did not seem to f to to care that much about the structure and spelling uh, in their subject areas. Um, you know, when, were, when when written assignments had to be had to be uh, done. So I always thought, you know, fewer English classes, more focus on the English language or the French language, whatever was uh, necessary at the time, and instead uh, try to bring in more subjects that would bring up the student's self-esteem. And in my opinion, uh, those are the arts, you know, uh, drama, uh, visual art, uh, music. Uh, self-esteem building is so important, and I don't think math and English uh, necessarily do it. You know, at seven years old, I have a hard time dribbling and stick handling around a 10-year-old, but I can still show them up in music. And, and it's, it's a self-esteem builder. It's a, it's, it's a good uh, mental uh, therapy for your entire life. Uh, to, to be able to uh, to do you know whether it's drawing or, or, or playing music, so I think uh, it's it's a sin when I see cutbacks in education, and every time it seems they're nailing you know the uh, hands-on subjects, industrial arts, or the arts programs, and I would sure hope that that would change. Okay, Paul Emil, thanks for your call. Hey, try, to, try to squeeze in one more caller, and then we'll uh, wrap things up. Rhonda is in Regina. Hi, Rhonda. Hi, Garth. Uh, this is a very quick call. Um, one of the things I'm most thankful for um, from my education is drilling. I remember sitting at my desk and chanting the times tables. I don't know how many weeks that went on or months, but uh, you know my ability uh, to handle math um, plus other basics. We got really good grounding, I would say, in, in the basics. But the drilling aspect of things, um, learning to memorize and having that, as your guest said, locked in your brain um, is just so fundamental. So those are my comments Great. for today. Thanks, Rhonda. Um, Michael, which way is the pendulum swinging these days? What, what seems to be the, the, the flavor of the month? Well, within, within the education system itself, like uh, within, for example, among department officials and superintendents and directors of education, the pendulum is still far on the progressive end, far from where I think it should be. Um, fortunately, among many of the uh, among many regular teachers, uh, among a lot of researchers, and also among some politicians who listen to public pressures, such as what's happening in Ontario uh, and a couple other provinces to a limited degree, the pendulum is, swung, is starting to swing back in the direction I think is, is better with the focus on the fundamentals. Um, but it's this, on, it's this ongoing clash. And, but unfortunately, the people who largely run things within school systems, administrators and such, uh, tend to be pretty far on the progressive end of the spectrum. And, uh, uh, you know, I, every, for, the last, for a number of years, I, I've spoken at the National Congress on Rural Education, which takes place in Saskatoon, and I've spoken there three times. And it's amazing, whatever I present, the divide in the room, because in the room you have trustees, you have principals, you have regular teachers, you have consultants. Um, trustees and parents and a lot of regular teachers really like my presentations, and the superintendents and the consultants can't stand it. It's amazing to watch the room just divide down the middle about people who really like what I'm saying and the people who really don't. So there is a there is legitimate difference of opinion on a lot of these topics, and, uh, and that's probably going to continue for some time. And we've only got a minute left, but are, are we starting to hit a wall? Are, are, are we are we to the point now where we really can't expect schools to do much more without giving up something else? 
Well, I think we are. I mean, it's, uh, you know, there's only so much that we can do. There's only so many hours in the school day. Every time you add something, you either have to take something away or you have to just dilute everything. And that's just, that's unfortunately what often ends up happening. And so I hope we are reaching a point where we recognize that we can't do everything. And schools need to focus on what they do well, which is actually educating, which is, which is learning content, learning facts, building upon that. And then you have critical thinking upon these things rather than taking the opposite approach where it becomes all about self-actualization and trying to cure every societal ail because you just can't do that all within the school system, at least not without diluting the fundamentals that all students need to learn. Michael, it's always a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. Well, always great to be with you, Garth. Thanks so much for having me on. Michael Zwagster is a public high school teacher in Manitoba, senior fellow with the Frontier Centre for Public Policy. If you have more thoughts on the state of education these days, give us a call on TalkBack, 1-800-661-7540, or email bluesky at cbc.ca. That's our time together for today. We're going to be back here tomorrow at 12 noon, and I hope you'll join the conversation then. Have a great afternoon, folks, and we'll chat a little later.